People often ask me the question, why is religion so absent? Now that's something you will never read in any other grand biography, but that's the story. My guest today is the esteemed American religious scholar, Dr. Ronald White. Dr. White is an alumnus of Princeton Seminary. He was the director of our Center for Continuing Education and also taught church history here. Currently, he is a fellow at the Huntington Library. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Craig. Wonderful to be with you. These are, uh, this isn't even all of your work. <laughs> this alone is a substantial amount of uh, historical work that you've done digging into these two giants in the American landscape. As someone who's theologically trained, Tell me what the role of religion is in studying American history. I was interviewed uh, yesterday by Brian Lamb on C-SPAN, and he kept saying, you keep using that word theological in your books. <laughs> we would probably all want to agree, I hope, that religion is a part of who we are as a nation, certainly part of our founding, but I do have to admit that I have a little bit of a concern. I would suggest in the words of a former colleague, Professor Jim Loader of the seminary, there's sort of the presence of an absence that when we especially write the biographies of American leaders, sometimes I think the religious story or perhaps the faith journey is missing. And if we don't capture that faith journey, we're not going to capture the full story of the individual and not capture the full story of the way religion works in American history and culture. Give us a couple of illustrations of that from either Lincoln or Grant. Well, Lincoln, uh, in his second inaugural address, 701 words, he mentions God 14 times, quotes the Bible four times, invokes prayer three times. I was told by my academic colleagues, don't get too excited, this is what we do in inaugural addresses, but actually that's not so. In the previous 18 addresses, there was only one mention of the Bible. Hmm. It was here at Princeton Seminary that I began to find out who was Lincoln's pastor, Phineas Densmore Gurley, number one in his class from Princeton Seminary, minister of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, I found that was a real tutor or mentor for who is Lincoln. So although some historians or biographies have tipped their hat to the religious language of Lincoln, it's more and more than just religious language. There's something very profound theologically. And if we do not understand the theological meaning of the second inaugural, I don't think we'll fully understand who is Abraham Lincoln. So would it be fair to say that Lincoln learned some of his, um, his notion of providence through his pastor? He did. He grew up in a, a second great awakening Baptist environment, no disrespect to Baptists, but he did what many young people do. He pushed away his parents and his parents' faith. He became what he called a fatalist, a kind of a kissing cousin to deism. But then later in life, which happens to so many of us, when life tumbles in, first the death of one child, then the death of a second child, he turned not to his parents' faith, but to a faith that could be his own. It wouldn't be an emotional Baptist faith. It had to be a more intellectual Presbyterian faith. And so I argue that in the second inaugural, we no longer have deism or fatalism. We have providence. This is what Presbyterians believe. We worship a God who has personality, who loves human beings, who enters into history, and this is what we are hearing in the second inaugural. Well, um, religion and politics have always had an interesting relationship with each other. Um, 
Lincoln's second inaugural is a classic illustration of, of a wonderful uh, way of being religiously motivated and yes. informed <clears throat> and create almost a democratic faith for the country, right, right. Um, trusting in the outworking of, yes. of God's own will. How does, without using names, how does it work badly? Uh, religion and politics get mixed up. Well, we've seen it work badly in lots of ways recently where faith and politics are linked, but it seems to me that in many ways politics trump faith. <laughs> that right. politics is, is really driving the conversation more than the faith uh, that, or the theology of the people who are using it. And so I like to say that we have separated properly church and state in this country. This is part of who we are but we've never separated, nor should be, religion and politics. Hmm. Does the, at its best, can religion help reveal some of the, the um, I don't know a better term, moral complexities of the age that our leaders need to attend to? Oh, I think so. I, I'm a huge fan of David Brooks' uh, The Road to Character. David Brooks, but that book, Road to Character, and. One of my, I try to do my biography from what I call from the inside out. It's important to know what Grant, for example, did, but it's more important, I think, and the reader wants to know who is Grant at his core. But when you use the term complexity, this is not some simple story to get at. I, I say that in the story of Grant, for example, there's a puzzle of many pieces, often seemingly contradictory pieces. How could a person be so gentle but so decisive? How could, a bo how could a boy who eschewed the use of guns, he would not use guns to hunt, become Sorry. the great, yeah, yeah. He, he was against the use of guns for hunting. And he becomes <laughs> you the, the great enemy one. with them, but you can't shoot yeah, animals. Yeah, yeah, so, right, okay. so there's a moral complexity here, which our greatest leaders, and I think Lincoln and Grant are both great leaders, they understood the complexity, they understood the other side of the argument, but that did not deprive them of moving forward with what Grant called, for example, moral courage, or I say of Lincoln, an inner moral compass. Hmm. Tell us why you wrote this book. I mean, the Lincoln one, I, I totally get why a theologian would be <laughs> yeah. interested in Lincoln, right, right. but why is a person who's theologically trained as well as historically uh, spend so much of your life devoted to the research and writing of uh, this book, Ulysses? Well, my editor wanted me to write another presidential biography. As I said before, I wanted a faith component to be a part of it. We considered Dwight Eisenhower, Woodrow Wilson, Jimmy Carter. But I just had the feeling that there was a faith story in Grant. It's not as profound as in Lincoln, and that Grant was someone who had been profoundly misunderstood. Yes, celebrated as a general, but his presidency was usually looked down upon we had forgotten that he'd taken a 28-month world tour in which the leader of China asked him to mediate a dispute with the leader of Japan, that he returns, uh, he loses all of his money in a Ponzi scheme on Wall Street, right. and then diagnosed with throat cancer, not ever wanting to write his memoirs because that would be self-serving in his understanding. He does write his memoir to earn money for his wife and writes probably the greatest memoir of American letters in, in, in our history. Hmm. So here's a man who just needs more understanding, and in the process I discovered not a Presbyterian faith story, but a Methodist faith story. Hmm. And how did his Methodist faith manifest itself in his presidency? Well, just a quick example, in the beginning of the second term, uh, we, we think of the National Cathedral as the first national church in Washington, not so. 
The Methodists were the largest denomination by the 1850s. They set out in 1852 to build a national cathedral. They called it a church. It became the Metropolitan Church, right. your neighbor when right. you were at National. And they wanted to dedicate the church just as the son of Methodism was being inaugurated as president. So Grant was inaugurated as president four days before Metropolitan Church was inaugurated. Grant was a trustee. Julia, his wife, was in charge of paying off the loan for the church. Hmm. And at the beginning of the second term, Grant writes to every member of his cabinet and says, I think the best idea would be if we could all attend church together on Sunday morning. I've got a great minister. You'll like his sermons. And we could rededicate ourselves by worshiping together. Now, that's something you will never read in any other Grant biography. Right. But that's the story. It was, it was really, it's really clear in this book that, that you like this guy. <laughs> I do like him. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're all in love with Lincoln, yeah. but you, you... I like this guy, yeah. Is, is, was there a need to kind of redeem his story? Well, there is, and I, I, I don't mean in any way to dismiss that on, either, on every side there are the shadow side. I mean, the scandals of his second term are there. Nobody ever implicated him, but obviously the question is, was he paying attention? Did he understand that power corrupts? Right. But I think that what I liked about him was his self-effacement, we would maybe call it humility, his willingness to not put himself forward. In his military reports, he always gave most of the praise to the men underneath his command, not to himself. And so in that sense, I found him an admirable and quite a character considering where we are today in our own politics of leadership. When you're... Um at the Huntington Library and you're surrounded by archival material and right, you're, you're putting right. this together. What's going on inside you as the author? Are you, a, are you just trying to do the history? Are you a conversation partner? I'm a conversation partner. I, well, I, describe that. People often talk about doing the research. It's far more than research. I don't think you could be 25 and write this biography. I live, sleep, uh, dream, Grant, three o'clock in the morning, Grant. As best I can, I'm trying to inhabit him to understand what makes him tick, what's going on inside of him. They called him the quiet man. He was frightened of public speaking. But inside of this man, there's a remarkable human being. And one way we know this human being is that his dear Julia, his wife, kept every one of his letters. So Grant, who had a difficult time expressing his feelings, expressed his feelings to her. So yes, I'm living with him. I feel like my wife, come, I come home and my wife says, are you in 1885 or are you in 2015? <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, give us just um, one sense in which being theologically trained has been an asset in doing history. Well, I th people often ask me the question, why is religion so absent? And quite apart, perhaps, from the biographer not being interested in this, I think my theological training has helped me immensely. When I did my first Lincoln book, my roommate next door, who you and I both know very well, John Stevens, said to me, you're doing nothing more than we learned at Princeton. You're exegeting the text. There we are. So I right. think that my ability right. to try to draw out of the text is everything that I learned here. I could not do this if I did not have this kind of theological training and ministry experience. Scott Berg introduced me, the author of the biography of Wilson, introduced me at the LA Times Book Festival. And he said, Ron, you've written such a personal book on Lincoln. Well, I don't know that I set out to write a personal book, but any of us who've been pastors know that we're interested in the personal story of the people in our congregation. That's what we want to know. And so 
that interests me. What is the personal story of Lincoln and Grant? Uh, I, and I think that's what the reader wants to know ultimately. Hmm. I'm often talking about the social relevancy of theology. And this is another wonderful illustration of it because, I mean, these aren't, you're not going to find these books in Christian bookstores necessarily. No, no. <laughs> uh, or in the religion section at Barnes & Noble. I mean, this is, this is written as straight up serious intellectual history, but as, as a trained theologian, you've come at it differently. Yes. And you've learned how to exegete text, as you said, and you have a pastor's eye. Mm -hmm. and, and when you look at these gentlemen, which is uh, a wonderful illustration of how a, a theological training has helped in the pursuit of just good, solid history. I think so. Sometimes people will say, well, you're a theologian. I'm not technically trained as a theologian. I mean, I'm an historian, but I think one can't do history, certainly in what I've learned here at Princeton in terms of not understanding the theological component. Right. And so whether it's Lincoln's pastor, Phineas Densmore Gurley, or Grant's pastor, John Hale Vincent, who would become the founder of the famous Chautauqua uh, in New York, right. that Grant learned a Methodist story. He once wrote back to Vincent and said, I can still remember your feeling discourses. Well, Grant, who couldn't express his own feelings, he caught that Vincent preached, probably as a Methodist preached in the middle of the 19th century, with great feeling. Methodism is an experiential tradition, and Grant appreciated that. Wow. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining us, Dr. White. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you again on the next edition of Conversations. Mm -hmm.